Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hi, I'm Alan Montesilio, in for Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to the Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. 21 states have tried to restrict, ban, or criminalize access to medical care for trans and non binary youth. Republican governors are leading the charge, like Greg Abbott of Texas. Governor Greg Abbott claiming so called sex change procedures constitute child abuse and Ron DeSantis of Florida. I think these doctors need to get sued for what's happening. I'm sorry. Many transgender people and their loved ones are scared and worried for their safety. We were stunned that it was no longer safe for us to be there. Some have even packed up and moved elsewhere, including to California, where most leaders want to go in the other direction. This law also sends a very powerful message to LGBTQ kids and particularly trans kids and their families that in addition to there being powerful political figures who are attacking them, that there are powerful political figures who have their backs. Today, the effort to make California a sanctuary state for gender-affirming care. Stay with us. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. There has been a wave of bills across the country, everything from penalizing doctors for doing it to investigating parents who are supporting their children and investigating them for child abuse. Leslie McClurg is a health correspondent for KQED. Most of these efforts are held up in court right now, uh, but there's definitely a loud push uh, to, to make it very difficult to access gender-affirming care in conservative pockets of the country. 
And before we get to um, some of the people you spoke with, can we briefly define some terms here? When you say gender-affirming care, what are we talking about exactly? Yeah, gender-affirming care, defined by the World Health Organization, defines it as social, psychological, behavioral, and even medical interventions that kind of support how someone feels about their gender identity. So this may be mental health support, or this may be puberty blockers, this may be hormone therapy, and and even uh, surgical procedures. It's ways to treat what's called gender dysphoria, which is a deep distress, internal distress, that your gender is different than the sex that is assigned to you at birth. I know you spoke with one mother from Texas. Can you tell me about her and her daughter's story? She's the mother of a 12-year-old girl, and this family felt really scared of what's happening in Texas. We were stunned, and I, again, did not think that they would be the center of all of the political insanity and rhetoric around this topic. She is very worried about investigations of families for child abuse if they're pursuing gender-affirming care. It was no longer safe for us to be there. So she did not want to make herself sort of open to, to one of these kinds of investigations. And she feels scared about the backlash in general that is happening against families who have tran- transgender children. And can you tell me a little bit about this mother's uh, trans daughter and, and the story of her coming out to her mother, at least from the mother's point of view? Early on, this the child of this mother, they began to explore the, you know, female gender. I was confused by it. And I was like, you know, talked to other parents and said, well, oh, and they were like, oh, yeah, this is just a phase. And I was like, okay, it's a phase. You know, that's fine. Feminine clothes. And, and then when they were nine, uh, they came out to their parents. As a girl. And two, two friends began requesting feminine pronouns. And, and the mother was, was surprised by this. And, and I think in her words, she said she had to kind of do some mental gymnastics. To wrap my mind around what that meant for us. And, and to be frank, my chi- I love my child and I know my child. And they are completely beautiful and bright and loving and kind and smart and all the things. Um, but I was concerned what that would mean in society for them. But she trusted her child and, and over the years has come to really land in that her child knows herself well and that and the mom now is, is very supportive, obviously, of this path. I have no doubt in my mind that my child knows exactly who they are. But then what happened earlier this year that made them feel scared? So earlier this year, back in February, uh, Governor Greg Abbott ordered Family Protective Services in Texas to begin investigating families for child abuse if they were supporting their children to pursue a different gender and or seeking uh, gender-affirming care. And so the mother began hearing stories of kids getting pulled out of classrooms and being interrogated by Family Protective Services. For up to an hour with their parents not being there. And these are children that have only socially transitioned. All they asked for was to be called a different pronoun. And so that's terrifying. She heard these stories from friends and families. And and I looked up, there are news reports of, of this happening. And so she got really, really scared. And you know, she's sending her child to school every day, nervous, and she even uh, made a little card for her child. 
to go to school with that listed her rights and told her what to do if somebody came, you know, to investigate us. That she could get, you know, a lawyer if she needed to. And so it was more of a reminder to say, you know, you're, you're safe. You don't have to talk to these people. You can wait until, you know, your lawyer or your parent comes and just to remind them of, of their, their right to not be really traumatized. So at what point did the mother start to think, we might need to actually consider leaving the state? She began consulting lawyers to find out, okay, what are the options? What are the protections? What should I do here? And, and the lawyers began talking about the potential risks at play. We had to assess our um, risk comfort, our comfort with risk. And when it comes to the safety of my child, that risk is none. I think they felt like it was a pretty black and white decision. I mean, I think, I think they wrestled with it quite painfully, but they weren't willing to stay and try to fight against a system that wasn't supportive for their child. And so because of California's more embracing stance in general to gender diversity, they considered California, and, and they also fortunately have family here in California. And so as this wave of bills was unfolding in the South, they began to, to look to California as a potential sanctuary. And have they, in fact, moved to California? In early October, they moved to Southern California, and they are starting a life over. So that's what we did. We pulled it together, and within six months, we've sold our house, and <laughs> we're staying with family, and um, we had to get you know, our kiddo into a new school in California, which was also crazy. So many, so much minutia that you would, I wouldn't thought of, have thought of <laughs> that goes into uprooting your life. Um, but we know in our hearts that it was the right decision because our child is safe and that's the most important thing. Do we know how many more families have experiences like this? People who've moved to California from more conservative states specifically for this reason? I don't have specific numbers. I don't think anyone is, is tracking that or, you know, I'm sure a lot of families are coming and not telling anyone. So we don't have specific numbers. But the advocacy organizations that I talked to said that, you know, the phones are ringing off the hook, that families who are in conservative states are very, very nervous and are considering this as an option. And what I heard from, you know, an advocate is many, many families, you know, have come to California. I don't have specific numbers, but it sounds like it is bad enough or scary enough in, in, these, in these states for these families that they are considering totally restarting their lives. Let's talk a little more about California and what California has done. Uh, the state recently passed a new law related to protecting trans and non-binary youth who seek gender-affirming care here. Um, can you tell me what that law is and how it works? We're the first state in the nation basically to, to create a sanctuary for families uh, and their children obviously to come and seek gender-affirming care. So this is a law that was put forward by Senator Scott Weiner. And the bill is, is very simple. It says that California is not going to be a party to enforcing those laws. And if those families of these trans kids feel unsafe in their states because of these laws and they come to California, uh, we are going to provide them with refuge and we're not going to send them back. 
And the law basically protects families from investigations, subpoenas, arrest warrants that may be unfolding in other states. Uh, and, and our law enforcement is not going to enforce uh, the laws of Texas and Alabama criminalizing these families. So if you're in Texas and you're being investigated for child abuse and you come to California, what California is saying is they're not going to help carry out the investigations in Texas that are pursuing families for child abuse because they're seeking gender affirming care. I want to dig a little more into why um, supporters of the law like Senator Weiner and many other people believe this is so important. Um, I know you spoke with the mother of a different trans person who is now an adult, but I understand started hormone treatment about a decade ago. Can you tell me that story? Sure. So Kathy Molig is who I talked to, and she's the executive director of Trans Family Support Services, which is an advocacy organization in San Diego. And I talked to her because her child about a decade ago uh, was really, really distressed with gender dysphoria. And so completely miserable in the fact that his body was becoming something that he knew he was not. Her son really wanted puberty blockers, did not want to go through puberty and have their body change in a way that didn't match their internal experience of their identity. And Kathy, mom, was really, really worried about her child's life. My son would not still be alive if we waited to 18. The, the, word, the way that Kathy said it is, if I wouldn't have fought for this guy, boy's name is Sam, if I wouldn't have fought for, for Sam to get puberty blockers. And so her story to me really reflects the mental health piece of this. Distress, the suicide rate, et cetera, is, is much higher for transgender children. And so gender affirming care is the standard of care because it addresses this mental health piece. To kind of put it into numbers, a recent survey found that nearly one in five transgender 13 to 24-year-olds have attempted suicide. Gender-affirming care, there's been a fair amount of research that shows that gender-affirming care does relieve this incredible internal distress, and that's why it's the standard of care. So Kathy's son does get this treatment, is now an adult. What treatments did he get? And, and in the end, what effect did they have on him? So he did have puberty blockers. His gender assigned at birth was, was female. And so they you know, blocked uh, the progress of, of going through puberty. And Sam very much identifies as a male now, is a very happy, uh, thriving, in Kathy's words, uh, 22-year-old uh, in college, uh, studying theology, you know, volunteers in many different areas, teaches gymnastics to little kids. She basically described him as a happy, vibrant 22-year-old. And, you know, doing all the things that a parent would want a 22-year-old to do, going to college, you know, working, having friends, just thriving as a young adult. And, and the way that she said it is, you know, I asked specifically because the one of the arguments about gender affirming care for kids is like, what if they change their mind? And I asked her specifically about that. And she said the only regret that they have and the only transitioned or helped their child transition sooner or earlier in their life. And their child was 11. He and I both would answer that question the same of the only regret we have is that it took us as long as it did to figure out what was going on, what was causing the distress, and what kind of treatment was going to be available to him. These moves by California, and in particular this law in California, was passed in response to laws 
uh, targeting this kind of care in Republican states. I've been talking about Texas. There's also Florida, Alabama. Um, but I also imagine there are groups and organizations here in California who don't believe kids and adolescents um, should have these treatments. Uh, what have you heard about that? There's a lot of opposition, even here in California, uh, even from you know liberal progressive people. I'm not sure about liberal progressive organizations. 45 organizations penned a letter to the governor asking the governor to veto this law. I mean, organizations that include the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Heritage Foundation, California Family Council, which is a conservative Christian organization, all disagree that we should be allowing kids to make decisions that alter their bodies. We want these treatments to not be happening on minors. I talked to Greg Burt about this. He's the director of capital engagement for the California Family Council, which is a Christian faith-based organization here in, in California. And he really underlined that he really doesn't think that the body is the problem and that kids are just too young to be making decisions that will affect their bodies and potentially, you know, fertility and, and other aspects of their lives. We think that society has a particular responsibility to protect young people who don't have the capacity to consent or understand the implications of these type of things. And so society has to put extra protections for kids. They believe the law could violate the Constitution in that states are supposed to sort of honor each other's decisions in each other's states. There's, there's going to be a constitutional crisis <laughs> when that happens. They also make some interesting arguments that I've since talked to many lawyers about, about whether or not this could violate parental custody, sort of creating a safe haven here if a kid runs away. But those arguments, uh, from what I can tell legally, will, will probably not hold up. Uh, but I can guarantee there's probably going to be some lawsuits looking into it. Leslie, what do we know about the long-term effects of puberty blockers and hormone therapy um, on young people? I think there's solid evidence that, from a mental health perspective, that gender-affirming care, puberty blockers, hormone therapy, et cetera, is very successful in relieving the distress that kids are under if their body is different than the gender that they internally feel. There is not great solid data showing whether or not kids remain satisfied with these medical interventions, or maybe that do they feel remorse? And there's not great data about that yet, great long-term data. There is pretty good data about whether or not adults remain satisfied with transitioning. There's a very small percentage of people who regret transitioning. It's under 4%. And there's also, you know, pretty, there's kind of scant evidence, I would say, about whether or not there's long-term consequences with, you know, say the effects of fertility or cognitive development on, on whether or not if you're, you know, stopping puberty or, you know, messing with your hormones, whether or not there are some long-term physical consequences. We just don't know yet. We, there's more science needs to be done or more studies need to be done to really understand. Earlier this week, a group of researchers in Amsterdam published a study in the Lancet Medical Journal. They followed 720 people who went through hormone therapy as adolescents and found that 706 of them continued hormone therapy upon follow-up. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., the National Institutes of Health says it plans to pursue clinical trials that will follow substantial numbers of transgender youth through the process. I want to end on the 
mom who moved to California from Texas with her family and her trans daughter. How are things going for them? I think it has been like it would be for any family pretty challenging, you know, the process. It's pretty fresh. So they've only been here for, I think, you know, two or three weeks. Um, My understanding is they're living with family. I think it'll take a minute to get settled. But I think the amount of relief that they're feeling is that's what I could really hear. It's like a weight has been lifted. A layer of stress that perhaps we didn't, all of us collectively didn't even realize we were carrying is just, it feels very good to not feel like you're in danger. What it was really clear in her voice is just how relieved they were to be in a place that is safe for their child to be themselves. Well, Leslie, thanks so much for making the time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. That was Leslie McClurg, health correspondent for KQED. This episode of The Bay was cut down and edited by me and producer Maria Eskinka. The Bay is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Alan Montesilio. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. 